This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. This is The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. I'm Lindsay Christians, food editor at the Cap Times. Happy New Year! This is a bonus episode of The Corner Table. It is adapted from a live online event we did on December 29th with Chef Courtney Burns. Courtney is a UW-Madison grad who has gone on to travel and learn and cook and write beautiful award-winning cookbooks. Her latest, Nourish Me Home, came out this past fall. On this audio, you're going to hear Courtney demonstrating how to make a couple recipes from that cookbook. You're also going to hear me say things like, leave a question in the chat, which you can do too if you become a member of the Cap Times. If you are not a member and you value local journalism and you want to support it, go to captimes.com to get in on our upcoming member events. And of course, give a listen. Hello, welcome everybody. I am so glad that you are all here. I'm going to read what I wrote so I don't just go all extempo here. Um, welcome to this Cap Times event with Courtney Burns, amazing chef. I am Lindsay Christians. I'm the food editor here at the Cap Times. I am delighted to be sharing this evening with all of you Cap Times members. Cheers. Uh, I want to take one second to let you all know how much we appreciate your support. It is crucial for the future of journalism here in Madison. We truly could not do it without you. Please share the word about membership with people you know who feel strongly about local journalism and would enjoy events like this one. We would so appreciate it. We are going to be doing some chatting and some cooking tonight. So please feel free, as I said, to drop comments in the chat. You can drop like formal questions, like fully worded questions in the Q&A. I will find them both places and I'll do my best to get them to Courtney. Um, If you wanted to pick up the cookbook that we're going to be talking about, Arcadia Books, The best bookstore in Spring Green, one of my favorite places in the whole world, is offering 15% off Courtney's beautiful new book, uh, which is Nourish Me Home. You can go to the link. I'm going to drop that in the chat right now so you guys can find it. And I'm going to quickly introduce Courtney, and then we'll open up with a few questions. So first of all, your short bio. Mm -hmm. Courtney Burns was raised in Chicago and attended UW-Madison, where in 2001, she earned degrees in cultural anthropology and South Asian studies with a focus on the Tibetan language. Since then, she has traveled all over the world. She spent a year in Nepal and India and fell in love with the flavors there. She cooked professionally in Australia. And after settling back in the U.S. in the Bay Area, she eventually became the co-chef at Bar Tartine. She co-wrote Bar Tartine Techniques and Recipes, which came out in 2014, and won a James Beard Award for cooking from a professional point of view. Courtney is now on the East Coast. She splits her time between Cape Cod and New Hampshire, and she has been so generous to give us some of her time and expertise tonight. Thank you for being here. So first of all, which kitchen are you in? Tell us where you are. I'm in New Hampshire right now. So Nice. It's beautiful behind you already. It's a very old 1751 barn, so it's, hopefully it's not too dark to see what's going on. These are all the lights we have. <laughs> <laughs> Is it chilly in there? In the house? Oh, no, we have wood-burning stove. I mean, it's Ooh, nice. super chilly. It's like 72 in here right now. Awesome. Yeah. So this year has been very weird for everybody. 
Um, I'm wondering what it's been like for you, how the pandemic has changed the way you've been cooking and eating this year. Hmm. How has it changed the way I've been cooking and eating? It's a great question. I mean, I think that the way that I've been eating, it doesn't always change. It's very, I mean, I try to eat as intuitively as possible. Um, I would say that with the pandemic, I've definitely been hyper vigilant about how much fermented food I get in my diet and how many vegetables I eat just to keep myself as healthy as possible. But there's definitely like bags of chips that are happening as well. And I love some good dark chocolate. So nothing's really changed. I mean, I usually cook a lot at home anyways. And so my world in general through the pandemic, outside of the kids being home, far more than they usually are, um, has been pretty status quo. I mean, I, I can't I can't say that my life feels like it's been turned upside down, except I don't get to hug my loved ones as much. Uh, yeah, I miss that. Um, so this is actually a question that I was chatting with a friend the other day about this event, and he suggested that I, I ask this one, and I, I liked it. Uh, when we think about cooking local, we might think that about where something was grown, but your process really focuses on fermentation and preservation and transfer ingredients. And so I wonder when you're thinking about process and transformation, does that change the way also that you think about what it means to cook local? I wouldn't say that it necessarily changes it. I would say that it magnifies it. Mm. So cooking from, let's say cooking on the West coast versus cooking on the East coast are very different. In essence, there's still a necessity for preservation not only because it transforms like flavors and creates like, you know, delicious jubilation, like everywhere that it goes, but it also, you know, gives us all these healthy, you know, uh, microbiota and all these, you know, probiotics in the process. But even if you can get tomatoes in the middle of winter, they're not going to taste good. They're like a peanut and all the nutrient density within them is not going to be what we want it to be. That flavor is not going to be there. They're like juiciness, that lustiness that we want from a fresh vegetable isn't going to be there. So it's really about necessity. Um, and so I'm both, you know, in both ways, there is this, there is this need for preservation. Um, and it's just different on the West, on the East coast, rather, there is a deeper necessity for it. Our seasons are far different. And so that's really the paradigm shift for me is how much more necessary it is to get through the leaner months than it is just creativity. So it's like on the West Coast, there's necessity, let's say 35% necessity with the rest creativity, and it's flipped on the East Coast. So that's really kind of the shift there. You've talked about how you are influenced and inspired by old world flavors and old world techniques. Can you talk about what that means to you? Sure. I think that like epigenetically and like in my cellular makeup, there is a desire to know where I came from. And I experience that in, in many different ways, be it like how foods make me feel, how flavors make me feel, what is resonant, what brings up stories, what brings up curiosity. And so I really, you know, I look at it um, from that vantage point a lot of times and really drawing from that, but also like through preservation and through the act of that, like this is, you know, this is a tried and true, uh, you know, met, you know, practical method that we've been using for years that actually has helped us evolve. And so kind of going back to it and paying respects to it, allowing it to modernize, but really looking at the flavors that came out of it. At some point, someone looked out into that field and said, yes, I need to preserve that, but I want delicious flavors. And so really trying to pay heed to, 
to that which came before in order to move and push forward. It's really kind of how I like to kind of respect and honor um, those traditions. And then also like the immigration patterns from, from one place to the next, like how have peppers moved through the world? How have spices moved through the world and really trying to understand so that I can almost ask for permission in some ways, you know, asking for permission to do certain things from other cultures so that it feels less appropriated and almost like I'm being taught and given a lesson. And so that's really how I like to um, approach those things. Talking about immigrant patterns and the way that foodways sort of move and evolve and change, that's sort of what drove Nourish Me Home, right? So can you talk a little bit about the concept behind that cookbook and, and what you used to give it bones? Sure. So when I moved originally from the West Coast to the East Coast in April of 2017, I moved to North Adams, Massachusetts, a tiny, amazing creative town, you know, in Western, in Western Mass with Mass Mocha and a huge music scene, like largest contemporary art museum in the country, but really kind of in the middle of nowhere on the Appalachian Trail, but a very, very old mill town. Um, and it was a very prolific mill town also. So when I got there, I kind of, you know, looked, I mean, for lack of a better analogy, looked at myself in the mirror and said, like, what are we going to cook? You know, what are we going to do here? And I knew that if I stepped into a kitchen right in that moment, without finding a new culinary muse, I was just going to cook food from Barge Protein because that's what I know. And that's what I had been cooking for the past seven years. So I started to really look at um, the immigration patterns of the area. To back up, University of Wisconsin was a huge influence in that, you know, studying cultural anthropology. And I did a lot of, um, you know, ethnographic work at the time. And food was always really kind of part of that. And so that piece of education really... Um, plays through into what happened in North Adams and what has continued to move me through food um, over the last couple of decades in general. So anyways, I started looking at the immigration patterns and I saw who had been there. Um, why, you know, why had these mills existed the way they did? And then I started to kind of explore outside of the, you know, nonfiction side of it. What would happen if this Lebanese family, this Italian family were living next to each other? What would that sort of co-creation of flavor look like? What if you went to someone's house to borrow a cup of sugar, you know, which is like a you know, classic analogy of neighborhoods um, in America, and they didn't have sugar, but they had like lavender infused honey. How would that dictate what happens next? And so that really was that sort of the basis um, for the book was to look at nonfiction, utilize it as a creative engine and a muse in essence to create a restaurant. And that's why I originally went to North Adams. I was creating a restaurant called Loom and that was going to be the backbone of the restaurant was this sort of through line, this story, not in your face, but it was giving me something to chew on so that I could go into the kitchen and, you know, create new things out of all sorts of old things really, but nothing yeah. is new these days in the culinary world. And then the restaurant didn't happen. And for a myriad of reasons, which is actually perfect, we create an event space instead it wasn't the right time for it. And so then the book became about finding home internally. What does it mean to do all of this stuff and create this whole thing and think that it's going to be the place that you, you know, exist for the next 20 years. And then it's not. So it ended up being a far more personal book than I think I set out for it to be. Um, yeah. And, you know, it definitely is a, um, you know, a mapping of time uh, over the course of a couple of years. You've talked about how you use food to do your human work, mm. and I loved that. I wonder 
if you still if you still think of it that way, um, if you still think about food as sort of a way of understanding people, both the people in your life and the people maybe you came from? Absolutely. I think that it's always part of how I step into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'd have to say full disclosure these days, like some days it's just about getting food on the table. And so maybe I'm not paying attention to my human work, but if I step outside, I realize that I'm not doing the best at my human work because I'm moving too quickly. I'm not pausing and realizing like the beauty and the joy within the craft sometimes. So there's always a lesson to be had. But for me, I do believe that I could have picked any medium. You know, I have other Mm -hmm. mediums. I did, you know, ceramic arts and photography at Madison for many years. Like I could be, I just need to be making something. And foods kept my interest because of all the interplay of the culture and flavor and, you know, history. Um, but it could be anything. But I think that we show up and, you know, especially in a pretty intense world like a restaurant kitchen, and we're faced moment by moment with obstacles and challenges. And it's like, you can show up and just cook. Like, I can teach you to cook. That's, you know, that's not the hard part. But, or you can show up and be like, wow, that's making me uncomfortable. Or, wow, you're frustrating me right now. Or, this is really um, stressful. Or, I feel uh, in, inept or inadequate. And it's like there opens the door to start to do all of that work, to find out like how we are in the world and how we can be better every day at interacting and taking care of ourselves, at loving ourselves. And so, yeah, absolutely. You have talked before also about the energy of restaurant kitchens and mm-hmm. how you, you know, you want to be in a place where everybody's trying to get a little bit better every day, but also that it's a place where you can find grace. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's still something you think about in the work that you do now? It, it's always part of it. Even cooking at home, it's like, how can you be efficient with your movements? How can, I mean, it's a dance. Cooking's a dance. You know, are you dancing with yourself? Are you dancing with others? Well, it really depends on the situation. So there's always that level of grace. And also like, what am I bringing emotionally into the kitchen within a given day? Because if I'm super frustrated or I'm not having a great day, can guarantee you the food may still taste good, but it's not as good as it could be. And so there's like these, you know, yeah, some may say it's super woo-woo. This is just my belief, but there's like layers of energy that go into our food in how we cook and how we show up in the kitchen and it, it presents itself on the plate. So you went to school here in Madison. Did you work in kitchens here? I heard that you did, but I'm just going to ask it open-ended. Sure. So I mostly worked front of the house while in, um, while in college. I think it was 1997. I took a job at the tornado room, uh, which was amazing. And I was there for a while and I was at, um, what was this? Team all truly for a bit and all these. And then I was at the El Dorado room. If anyone remembers that, still I don't know if it's still there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. No. Oh, that chocolate tart. I just used to have to eat that all the time. <laughs> it was so good. So slowly I would, you know, I loved cooking. I was very lucky. My parents used to send me to culinary camp in high school, which is kind of hysterical uh, outside of Chicago at, uh, in Evanston. And so I would work, you know, the night shift, but I would ask if I could come in for a couple hours and just cook um, in the, you know, in the afternoon because I was just super curious. I just wanted to know what was going on and I wanted to be cooking. I always loved to do it. At the time, I could just make a lot more money as a college student waiting tables. And so that's kind of was how I split that time. But I always worked pretty much had a full-time job all the way through college in restaurants. Yeah. 
I, I talked my way into the back of house that way too. Cause I was like, I just need more shifts. Like I need, I need more time here and I'm not getting enough like front of house shifts. So like, I'm just going to do prep and squeeze lemons for two hours. Exactly. Great training. Um, you have moved around a lot in your career. And I wonder, like you've run kitchens, you've taught classes, you've done butchery, you you've run your own business. What is it about a place that makes you want to stay? And when do you know that it's time to move on? It's mm, a great question. It's time to move on. And I think that's the easiest one to start with when creativity feels stunted, mm. when it just everything feels challenging. Um, and not challenging, like, I don't want to do the hard work. Challenging, like, I'm butting up against all of these walls that are not allowing my creativity to flow in the way that I want it to. And it's not like that happens one day and it's over. I mean, that's like, like at Bar 13, it took us three years to unravel and not buy it. So it's not like, oh, I'm bored, I'm done. It takes a long time for that process to happen. But it's when that creativity feels like all these other things are in the way and that that is not able to, you know, to speak to its full uh, capacity or desire or need. And so that's really kind of the biggest hurdle, I would say. Um, what was the other part of it? I when just went you, straight to the... Yeah, no. When do you know that you want to stay? What makes you want to stay? Mm. Balance, I think, mm. is what makes me want to stay the most, knowing that there's there's some empty space somewhere that allows for that growth in whatever capacity that may be and allows for that downtime to actually do that creative work. So it's like, I love the hard work. Mm. I love like grind of it, but that's the easy part. And so finding space to, um, to continue, uh, to ideate and develop. Um, that's when I know I want to stay. And when I have room to do other things that really fulfill me. Mm. So because this is a fundraiser for journalism, essentially, it's an event connected to journalism. I wanted to note that at UW, you did start majoring in journalism. I, I think. did. Yeah. I did. How did you one out? Yeah, I, I did. I research. I was originally a journalism major and I wanted, I was doing journalism and photography and I wanted to work for National Geographic. That was like my, you know, 18 year old dream. Um, it still sounds pretty amazing. <laughs> and then biological anthropology. And so I was working, like I was cataloging bones from the Aleutian Islands for a long time, looking at that sort of stuff. And then went into like Ghanaian um, music for a while, like uh, African studies, and then ended up in um, South Asian studies with my uh, deep love for Buddhist philosophy. Nice. How did you get from anthropology to cooking? Well, I don't really think that they're separate. Mm. I mean, I think that they are extremely interwoven. Um, I think that food is a soft entry point to culture. And without that, I don't think we can understand people in place. And so, you know, I really see them as, as linking together. Oh, I love that. It has a very Jonathan Gold ring to it. He would say things like that as well, um, where he would talk about basically using food to get to understand people and culture, you know? Absolutely. So do you want to start cooking? You can. Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. All right. So first of all, lovely to be with you all. I can't see all your beautiful faces, but I hope that you're having fun or you're going to have fun. And I think <laughs> you guys all know this is a choose your own adventure hour. 
you can choose to cook along. I'm because I can't see you, I'm probably going to clip a little bit faster unintentionally than you might want me to always pause and ask a question. Feel free to jump in, throw it in the chat, throw it in the Q and a, and I will slow down. Um, I've prepped a lot of things ahead of time, which I will talk about because some of otherwise we're going to be here for like four or five hours, which could be a blast, but I'm not going to have time for it tonight. Um, and then a little bit about the dishes we're going to cook. Uh, so we're going to be making sauerkraut fritters. And so kind of speaking to that fermented vegetables, speaking to these old world flavors in a kind of a more modern way is really the essence of, um, of this dish. And I love Indian pakoras. I don't know if that's a familiar dish to anyone. And I also love latkes. And I also love fermented food. So this is like the triad of those three things together um, in hopes that everyone can get more fermented vegetables into their diet, but also it layers and nuances of flavor. So through the act of fermentation, which is transformation, these you know, microbes are taking hold of our vegetables or fruit, whatever it is that we're preserving, and it's transforming it. It's, it's coaxing out that sweet, which is sweet and starch, which is using to transition it into probiotics. Super healthy for our gut, amazing for your body, great for your skin. Really, nothing bad can happen um, from fermented vegetables, which is also great. You should feel like you can go uh, ferment with reckless abandon, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But this is an ode to that in a cooked form with a super creamy kind of wholesome sauce that honors cheese, which, I mean, we're in, we're in Wisconsin ostensibly, so we got to do something with cheese in it. Um, and also really speaking to that old world technique again, You'll see in your recipe, it says farmer's cheese um, or ricotta, which we'll talk a little bit more about as well. But it's an old world um, natural souring method with classical farmer's cheese. And so we're not doing that method tonight. Um, if you want to do that method, it is in the Bar 13 book or you can look it up. But it's really paying you know, homage to these older, slower ways of making food. And so although we're going to clip tonight a little bit... Um, there is kind of a, a cadence to this. If you were to make every bit from scratch in order to make this, where it would be a few day process. And people used to have time like that. We may or may not anymore during this time period of our lives because of the pandemic, maybe there is. And then by all means, if you didn't make the fresh farmer's cheese, you know, to, to ideate or to make this the first time, try it some other time because it is really a lovely process to watch food transform. So that's kind of that. And because um, we're going to be making the fritters tonight with an already fermented vegetable, I'm going to quickly talk you through just like a basic sauerkraut so you feel like you have that in your back pocket as well. And it's a technique that you can do with any grated vegetable because it's a dry it's a dry salt, which I'll, I'll talk about when we get to that. And then you can, let's say, go ahead and make this and then a couple weeks, three weeks from now, use it to make the fritters again or for your first time, however you're choosing to um, go into this class. So. I just dropped the link to the recipe in the chat. So the, the link to the recipe is right there uh, for folks if you want to just kind of follow along. Perfect. So we're going to start with the farmer's cheese. We're going to move around a little bit. So we're going to start with the farmer's cheese and get it cooking. And then we're going to make our sauerkraut. We'll let that sit. We'll move into making the fritters. And then by the time those are basically done, we'll come back to finish off the farmer's cheese. So we're going to do a little alley-oop um, for time's sake. So... We're going to get started here. Please holler if you need me to stop or slow down. So first things first, we are going to take a couple tablespoons of butter and just start to slowly melt it in the pan. We're going to do this so that we can sweat down some onions and garlic and our potatoes to make the base of this sauce. 
The reason that we're using potatoes in this, which might seem super odd, is to actually act as a thickening agent. So instead of adding, let's say, flour or making a roux, we're going to just add those potatoes, which will give it that heft, and we'll make it a little thicker in the end um, and give it a really nice texture. So while the butter's melting, I'm going to take my onion. I've already peeled it, but I just want to show you guys, when I work with round vegetables, often when I'm peeling an onion, I'll cut off the top. I'm going to talk through a couple of technical things just because I always love a good tip, and I learn something new every time I step in the kitchen, so I'll share with you a few little things. Um, I like to start with it and make a flat surface. So any round vegetable is kind of precarious on your cutting board. So we like to uh, you know, offset any possibility of cutting your hand off, I mean, to be dramatic. Um, and so I always try and take the vegetable, cut it in half so that I'm working with a flat surface in order to cut. And before I cut, also kind of one thing to note is I like to keep these first four fingers really flat with the knife flat um, on it. And this thumb, with this opposable thumb, which has given us so much evolution, <laughs> it makes us who we are, we want to keep that thing. So I like to put it behind it. And that way you can push your vegetables forward or whatever you're cutting, but also the propensity for you to cut it off, let's say if your hand was flat and it wasn't behind it, is far less. It just keeps you safe. So safety is the thing, the, the most important thing in the kitchen. You don't need to be Morimoto. There's no reason to cut really quickly. It looks dramatic on TV, but like it really serves no purpose. So just be safe and have fun because we want to be able to cook tomorrow too. So that's my little, that's my knife spiel. So I'm just going to go ahead and quickly cut this up. It doesn't need to be perfect because we're going to end up pureeing it. The only thing that I would say is, you know, cut it kind of thin so that it cooks um, relatively quickly. The so I'm just pushing the less you cry. Exactly. And if you wear contacts, you don't cry at all. It's great. Thanks it's amazing. The best thing. <laughs> best thing ever. Um, I'm just going to go ahead with this guy. And then once it gets to the point where you feel like you don't have a sturdy grip on it anymore, where it's not, you know, the larger side is not flat on the board, I just pop that down again, and then I'll just cut it this way. But the sharper your knife, yes, the less you cry, the sharper your knife, if you do cut yourself, the um, easier it will heal also. So I'm just going to get this going right in here. I love that you have a picture of steak behind you on the wall. So that is a, it's a painting that I got probably like 18 years ago. And it's one of my favorite. It's a ribeye. It's an oil it's painting. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go ahead and just microplane some garlic in here. Your recipe says mince, so you can use um, your knife if you want. I love to use this tool for grating um, basically anything that I can get my hands on. Uh, lemons, you're going to see me using it for that. We'll use it for our chili as well but I'm just gonna go ahead and get this in here really quickly. Um, just breaks it up. If I were not cooking with you guys right now with a time frame, what I would do is I would actually grate this garlic or mince it and let it sit on my cutting board for 10 minutes. And the reason that I would do that is the active ingredient and the nutritive, most nutritive ingredient in garlic is the allicin, and it needs oxygen in order to activate. Huh. So if you just sit on your board for a bit, and before you cook it, once you cook it, it's still activated. So you get all the nutritive benefits of it. If you were just to cook it right away, there's still a lot of really amazing health benefits that you can, you know, garner from garlic. But let it, you know, just kind of one of those tips if you're not in a rush, just let it sit there, let it oxygenate, and you get even more of um, the nutrition out of it. And that's all the antimicrobial, antibacterial, um, antiviral properties that the garlic has. Yeah. 
The microplane is the tool that tells me how much attention I'm actually paying to what I'm doing because you will grate the tops of your fingers if you don't watch. <laughs> Turns out. Yeah. Not that I've done that. Oh, yeah. No, of course not. Like, <laughs> which is part of the deal. Yeah. Right in. And then I'm going to put the potatoes in here, too. We're going to gently sweat this down. When I say sweat, I'm really just looking at a gentle cook without much color to keep all of the sweetness uh, in the allium. Most people, I don't think, recognize how much sugar and good sugars are actually in onions and garlic and things like that, and potatoes for that matter. So by not caramelizing them, we're really the caramelization does bring out some more of that Maillard, more of those sugars, but a really gentle cook just slowly coaxes those sugars out and brings out, I think, a little bit more of that sweetness. I've already diced up some russet potato here, and I'm just gonna pop that right in. I used some little purple potatoes that I had left over from the CSA and they worked fine. That they work really well in this too. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things. I'm always a big proponent of use what you have. Provide. Mm -hmm. Everything's a template. And that's really how one of like my mottos that I like to live by is that most recipes are templates. Like if you don't have something, use something else. If you don't, like we're going to put, you know, some spices in here. If you don't like caraway, don't put it in. Add something else. So very much like check in with yourself, what's going to work for you and what's going to make it the most delicious for what you're doing. So absolutely. So while that's sweating down, we're going to do a quick crepe tutorial. So just so you guys can see, this has been, this is a green cabbage kraut. It's been going now for about a month um, and it's ready to go. It's, I'm not using this one today in it. I also had a turmeric kraut that's kind of in the mood for that flavor. So we're going to use that tonight. But I'm going to yeah. show you guys how to make red kraut that's really in the same style as this. But I mentioned the three because they're all done in exactly the same way with exactly the same ratios. So I'll explain more about that in a moment. So this is just a small head of red cabbage. I'm going to cut the bottom off. I have to say that looks just like the one in my grandmother's basement. <laughs> like identical. The cabbage? No, the kraut that you just said over there. Like. Yeah. It's like That's a scene from my childhood, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It hasn't changed, you know, in hundreds and hundreds of years. It's the same exact thing. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. Um, and that's really where we draw, you know, a lot of our inspiration from. I'm going to cut this core out. You don't have to, but I just think it makes for a nicer kraut. So what we're going to do this, like the basics of lactic fermentation, and we could talk, we could spend hours on this, but there's <laughs> wet brine and dry brine. Wet brine means you're taking, let's say, like a whole beet or even this whole cabbage. You're going to submerge it completely in a brine that you make out of salt water. When we're working with a dry brine, like a sauerkraut, what we're doing when we cut the vegetable up is we're exposing all of the cell walls, both to oxygen, but also to salt. And what that's going to do is it's going to extract all of the natural moisture that's already present in the cabbage. And that's going to create the brine for it. So we won't need to really add any more. So that's kind of the difference. And let's say just in case anyone wants to know, for when I do a wet brine, like if I'm doing whole beets, I would do a three and a half percent salt based on weight of water. And for sauerkraut, I do two and a half percent salt based on the weight of the vegetable. So just a couple kind of back pocket um, ratios to, to work with in your kitchen. And then you can experiment from there. So again, I'm just going to cut this guy really thin. Every cabbage is different and every cabbage releases moisture differently. 
So we just, you can see how moist it is. If you're getting really farm fresh um, cabbage, let's say from the farmer's market, you can also ask your farmers which ones are best for preservation. Some have more moisture and the more moisture cabbages, uh, the better brine you'll end up getting. It's not that it's better in like a delicious way, you'll just get more of it, which helps with um, fermentation. We'll pop this in here. And there, just to kind of ease everyone's mind, there has not yet been a reported incident of foodborne illness from fermented vegetables. So there's a lot of reports, of course, of meats and things like that. And there's a whole nother layer of safety. Um, but when you're working with fermented vegetables, they work with clean things. Of course, you can have your jars clean. Don't overwash your vegetables if you know where they're coming from. And don't like wash your hands, obviously, but don't take away all the good microbes that are there because this is the terroir of your ferment. And so, yes, be cleanly and be, you know, conscious about what you're doing, but you don't want to create such sterility that you don't have any microbes available. I feel like we need to hear that in 2020 more than ever. We have sterilized everything around us and nothing living anymore. <laughs> right. Here is some truth to that. There's like probably hand sanitizer and 98% of the ferments that have been made this year. <laughs> no, everyone's loves. I'm just kidding. But yeah, there is, you know, there's always layers to how cleanly you want certain things to be. So absolutely be cleanly, but I would say we can have a little bit of leeway. So I've already weighed this, so I know how much it is. Um, and so I've weighed the salt out too, but I'm going to add an onion to this guy. You don't have to, but I love adding onions and I just because I love alliums in general, I'm going to do this nice and thin as well. I love adding apples to my kraut sometimes. I wouldn't necessarily for the fritters, but if you were going to braise it down and have like a pork roast or something like that, mm. or some soft food, having an apple in there as well is really lovely. Sounds delicious. I like the layers of flavor that the onion brings to it. I think that's going to be enough for this. I'm just going to add this all to the bowl. Super not fussy. And I've got some toasted caraway seeds. Again, if you don't like caraway, you can use anise. You could use cumin. It just really depends on what flavor profile you're going for. And um, they're whole there. That's a whole. They are whole. Yep. Once in the brine, they really soften. And I love that little pop of flavor and texture <laughs> in the kraut. So I've done 2.5% salt based on the weight of this mixture. And I'm just going to throw that right on. It's truly that simple. And then this is just going to get massaged. So it's going to take maybe a couple, three hours for it to really release all the liquid that I want. So we may not jar it up together, but I'll show you what happens over a little bit of time here. And you do really kind of want to give it a good, good squeeze. It helps to soften the cell walls and to get that moisture to start to release. And I can already see that there's way more liquid and it's way more moist than it was originally. So I'm going to set you this do with like a kale salad, same kind of thing, exactly. right? Yeah. And it's exactly the same. You're really breaking down those fibrous cells to release themselves to kind of to soften um, underneath, you know, the pressure. So I'm just going to set that guy here while we go on. Any questions that I need to feel before we keep going, Lindsay? I think we're doing okay. I, I feel like your discussion of the of the, the microbes and not overwashing things reminds me of something the Andrew, the owner of Madison sourdough has talked about, mm -hmm. which is that like bakers will basically impart some of their own microbiome to the bread they make. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, a, a baker's 
like, you know, yeast that in sourdough starter that he or she is using, they like, yeah, the, the microbiome is like, makes a difference in that. I thought that was kind of cool. But. I mean, and it a lot, you know, some of the stuff bakes out when you're going at high temperatures and that's the difference between like a raw versus a cooked, but it helps with that initial ferment. And that's really what's happening when you speak about the sourdough is everyone, we all have microbes on us. It's like, it's a huge part of yeah. how we're made up, how our bodies work. Um, and we are distributing them all over the place in the food that we cook, especially when there's a natural fermentation that's happening. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. Oh, there is a question. I missed it. I'm sorry. Uh, do you have a preference between kosher and sea salt for your lactoferments? You know, that's a great question. I, I have two schools of thought on this one. I like um, the natural sea salts or the minerals, and I think mm. that's great. You want to back off by a little bit on the percentage because the salinity level like gram for gram can be higher. Uh, I'm strictly speaking to diamond kosher salt right now. And the reason for that is I find it to be a really benign flavored salt and it's very um, consistent and everyone can usually find it. So mm. you can definitely use it. I would start with like 2.25% if you're using a natural sea salt and then also like three to 3.25 if you're doing the wet brine and just taste it and see what you think. Um, but the minerality content in a natural sea salt is going to be exponentially higher. And that's what I love about it. So I have yeah. found in Madison that I have to order diamond crystal kosher, really, um, which I do. Um, but, uh, Morton is apparently preferred in this area. I don't know if it's true across the city, but I have struggled to find it on the East side where I live. So just a thing. There's like a place at Woodman's where it's just always empty. Huh. So I guess they don't stock it. I don't know. Morton's is way coarser. I can't, you would have to look that one up because I don't know how that one translates. Right. It's a very different salt. Yeah. Very so different. I used to have to translate recipes all the time and I got irritated. So now I order it. I order salt online. Yeah. If you have Morton's, I would start with 2%. You know, if that's what you have at home right now, because it's so coarse and the density, the dense structure of it is far different. So you can use it, but just back, you know, back it off a little bit so many different cells we could go on with that one forever. So I'm going to bloom um, the spices into the mixture here of the potatoes, onions, and garlic. So I have the black pepper. Um, I have the caraway and I have a bit of coriander in here and I'm just going to, and the salt, I'm just going to put it in and let those spices bloom a little bit in the fat right before I add in the stock. And then once I add the stock in here, we're going to let that simmer for like 25 minutes uh, while we make our fritters. So the blooming of the spices, certain spices, you don't have to do this one here. These ones aren't the most oil-soluble spices around, whereas like a paprika is a really oil-soluble spice. It really wants that fat to pull out all of its aroma and flavor. These guys, um, it can go either way. The recipe is actually written that it goes in later. I'm just doing it here because it's like a natural instinct for me sometimes, but these ones don't actually need that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the, the nature of that one. So then add the stock in here. I've just got half a cup. A vegetable stock. If you have chicken stock, that's great. You can use that as well. That's what um, I used. Great. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about your cheese sauce. Oh my God. So my cheese sauce didn't work, but I thought, I, I kind of think I know why. And it's because what we found for farmer's cheese, so the recipe calls for farmer's cheese or ricotta and the like ricotta, right? Very soft, kind of like a cottage cheese. 
Um, and farmer's cheese, the one that we found at the co-op was more like a part skim mozzarella in texture. And so I thought, I don't think this is right. And so I grated it with the hope that that would make it magic and it would work. And the cheese sauce, you know, was very lumpy. And then I put it in the blender and the blender was like, I'm not having this and did nothing basically. (laughs) And I kept adding a little bit of broth, a little bit of broth, trying to make it a sauce and it didn't really work. And so then I used my immersion blender, which also didn't really work. But then like today when I was heating it up and actually even last night when I was heating it up to actually serve the cheese sauce, then the cheese melted and everything was fine because it sort of all incorporated. And it was still honestly kind of lumpy and a little bit more salty than I think it would have been if it had been a true farmer's cheese because there was more salts in the cheese that I used. So I should have trusted my cook's instincts and not just sort of, this is a thing, a challenge that I have sometimes where I'm like, I don't think this is right, but then I do it anyway. And if I just trust the little voice. The reason I ask is not to call it out, but just to say, oh, yeah. like, hey, we're not always going to find the same ingredients. Yeah, but exactly. ate it and it was delicious, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. It turned it out great. Improvised and you came through okay. So mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the moral of this story is the kitchen is an yes. improvisational theater and it always should be. I so. would say get ricotta here in Madison. Like I'll go for the ricotta. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's the case. Or you can make farmer's cheese. You can always make your own ricotta at home too. Um, so while that's simmering away, we're going to start with our fritters. So I've gone ahead and roasted my sweet potato ahead of time because it does actually take a bit of time. And this is a Japanese sweet potato, also called satsum emo. This is the, speaking of improvising, if you haven't had leftover mashed potatoes, just like go forth with reckless abandon. Because it's a great way to use it up. If you don't, then like roast a potato. If you don't have a sweet potato and you're at home and you want to make this, use a raw set. You know, so there's many ways to do this. Again, the potato is acting as a binding agent. It also is adding a bit of sweetness to offset the sour, you know, of the fermented vegetable. But it's really acting as, you know, coagulant more than anything else. And so the beans are doing the same thing. And all of this is a template. As long as you kept like your beans and your potato within the same ratio and your egg, you can pretty much add whatever you want to this. And so that's just kind of my thought on that. So I've got my beans drained here. I just say canned beans in there because it's like, sure, you can cook your own, but we're just going to mash them. So you might as well just use a canned batch of them or if you have leftover beans, I mean, go for it. So I'm going to mash these up with my fork a little bit. And I am going to do the same thing with the potato, which has been peeled. It's super soft. You want to get it so that it's like absolutely mashable. And Japanese sweet potatoes are probably one of my favorite sweet potatoes out there because they really do have a super high sugar content as far as sweet potatoes go. And if you roast them really hard and puree them with a little butter, they taste like butterscotch. So that sounds it's good. like dessert. Yeah. Like, it's really good. I'm just, you could do this with a potato masher. I don't have one. I might after this evening invest in one. Um, <laughs> probably be a great tool to have. You could put this in a little Cuisinart art too, if you wanted. I'm also going to add the egg in. So we've got like seven ounces of sweet potato in here. We've got, um, one can of drained, like 15, you know, ounce can of cannellini beans. Um, and then I'm just going to add a whole egg in just a large egg. And that'll help me get this all mixed up. I think I used a pastry, like a pastry blender, just because I prefer that to the, to my actual masher that I have. Great. Great. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, we're really just looking at like a full kind of mash situation. Mm -hmm. Not the sexiest bowl you've ever seen, but it's going to get delicious. So if you have whole fermented vegetables, let's say you bought whole carrots or you have whole beets, I would put those onto a box grater and grate them and squeeze them out. I have made a turmeric um, sauerkraut. So I took, you know, just like we did with the red cabbage, exactly the same thing, added in a bit of cumin and some chili and a little bit of fresh turmeric juice. And so I let that ferment. And I'm just gonna add this right in here um, to this the color. Cheese. It's awesome. Yeah, it's got a really lovely hue to it with all of the, uh, all the yellow of the turmeric. So I just juiced it and added that into it. So in this, I, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the, the fermented vegetables that I used in this, because I did not make my own, um, were from a brand called Zimbiotics, which is out of Milwaukee. And they have carrots, beets, kraut, and I think kimchi. I th actually, I know they have kimchi because their kimchi is great. Um, but they have them at the co-op. I've seen them at other spots too. I think Woodman's has them as well. Like these pretty, they're pretty well distributed. Um, but I used carrots because they're already julienne's. Um, but yeah, you could do whatever you want. Exactly. Now you can find, seems like it's pretty readily available these days to get like a, you know, grated beet kraut or a carrot kraut or just straight up sauerkraut um, in most stores. Uh, mm. And if you can find the ones that are in the refrigerated section versus the ones that have been, um, you know, heat heated for um, storage, you'll get all of those nice probiotics. It's, it's okay. The other ones are delicious and they have great uses, but if you want to really harness all of the nutrients that are available in a given ferment, you want to work with the ones that are actually perishable. They're not quite perishable is very loose term when it comes to fermented food. My <laughs> date on them, but that's just because the FDA is like that. Um, they will basically last in your fridge longer than you won't have them as long as they'll last basically. Mm. So just a good thing to note. All right. So I'm using a little bit of rice flour here only because I'm not adding gluten to mine. If you had regular flour, you can also use that. They don't really need the gluten structure because they have so many other starchy elements happening here, happening here to hold it together. But I've got my flour here. It's been mixed. I have some salt in here. I've got um, coriander and then some caraway and red chili flakes in here. I like these to have a little bit of a kick. So I'm going to add the flour and then all the spices here as well. And just mix those guys up. And then to offset some of the sweet and some of the acid from um, the crowd itself or that sour, I'm going to add some lemon zest in to just kind of perfume it a bit. And once it gets, uh, once you cook it, all of those essential oils that are in that lemon really start to kind of bloom and come out when you eat it. So again, I'm going to use the microplane to zest the lemon. When I'm working with the lemons, I like to do just a really quick flick because all of those natural oils really live on the rind. Um, once you get into that white, they start to bitter a little bit. It's not gonna make this taste off at all. But if you really wanna you know, really um, bring out all of the, the lemon aroma, you just wanna do like a very quick flick of the wrist with it. I immediately, after I had denuded my lemons, I gave them to my husband and had him make a cocktail. <laughs> what did you have him make? Oh my gosh. Now I got to think of it. Well, it wasn't a, it wasn't a gold rush, which I like a lot, which is Great. like bourbon, bourbon, honey, and lemon. Um, I, think, I think, oh no, we, he made me a South side. 
because we had some extra mint. We had some extra mint in the in the fridge. And so I had a south side. I love I love a south side. Great with lime too. Gin and citrus and can't really go wrong. Mint, yeah. And then I'm gonna I have a jalapeno here. This time of year, finding fresh chilies can be extremely challenging. And I know that Lindsay spoke to that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm using a jalapeno. If you can't find jalapeno or serrano. You can always put extra chili flake in here, or you can find like a dried padrone or something of that nature. Just improvise again, or find a pickled jalapeno and throw it in. So, you know, whatever works. If you're spice adverse, leave it out. Usually I would use a fair bit of the serrano. I know that this guy is like four times as large. there. And in the recipe, it says mash it up by hand. It's so much easier. Sometimes you just got to really get in there. So that's what I'm going to do right now. And it should really feel like thick dough. Almost feels like a really thick cake batter. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's what yours felt like too, Lindsay? Yeah, they came together really well. Um, mm -hmm. I've been doing a lot of baking around the holidays. And I just made sublays for the first time and cursed a lot in my kitchen because I didn't know I should have watched the YouTube videos first before attempting to like bring the dough together by sheer because I didn't want to mess with it too much I always worry about over handling my food to make it tough you know yeah so but these have so much starch there's like the starch from the sweet potato there's the starch like there's the the beans the egg is in there there's so many things working in your favor to make them come together that you don't have to try that hard which I really appreciate it Exactly. So this is what it looks like. Like you can see that it's yeah. pretty sturdy. Yep. I'm going to mince some dill into here too. And I'm not, you know, you can go ahead and pick it all you want. It's fine. Is that alive? No, it's not. I wish it was. Oh, okay. Definitely, it does not. But this is how I keep my herbs in my fridge. Mm -hmm. So I'll put them in a little bit of water in the jar and then I wrap them in plastic. And that yep. really keeps them for far longer. So I'm just, I'm prepped and ready for that. Um, part of the evening. Just checking on our potatoes here. Turn this down a little bit. And I'm just going to kind of rough chop the dill. It smells so good for herbs in the winter. It is, you know, the original uh, medicine cabinet. So, mm. nature's apothecary chest, as I like to think of it. So I like to put as much herbs, as many herbs rather into salads and food that I can because they have so many really um, health benefiting properties to them. So again, I'm just going to see if I can mix this gently without getting my hands dirty again. And this batter lasts really well in the fridge for a couple days too. So you can cook them all and then reheat them like we do with latkes a lot of the time um, over the December month, or you can keep this for a couple days in your fridge and cook them when you want, or make them ahead of time for, let's say if you're going to have a dinner party or something, if that's in our future somewhere. As Yeah. As I mentioned, I had these leftover today for lunch. So I had, we had them for dinner last night and then I had them again today for lunch and I just warmed them up in the oven and they were great. Uh, but like knowing that I could keep the dough is wonderful because then I can, I'm notorious for being like, Oh crap, it's 8 PM. And I haven't started dinner. Exactly. Yeah. And they're great for throw a fried egg on top, a little salad, off to the races. So that guy's ready to go. This guy's taking a second. We're going to look at our crowd here. 
And you can see, I mean, I'm hoping you can see how much moisture, does it look moist to you? I mean, mm -hmm. my dark little dungeon kitchen. So and it's really starting to extract its liquid. One thing that I love about the red cabbage is when it's done fermenting, it's like the most beautiful, like vermilion hue you could possibly want out of a vegetable. It's just lovely. Um, so as it gets smaller and smaller, you'll be able to fit it into a smaller jar. Um, so I like to leave it for a while till it really breaks down enough and I'm not having to transfer too many times. And since that one's not gonna be ready in time, I'll show you guys what I do here. There's lots of different mechanisms for putting airlocks on your ferments or anything like that. The natural byproduct of fermentation is carbon dioxide. So if you were just to leave this on your countertop, you'd come back at some point and this like middle lid to the ball jar is going to be um, punctured out a little bit because it's starting to, you know, it's creating all this pressure in there. So when that happens, you want to what we call it, we call it burping it. So every couple days, let's say this is sitting on your countertop, you would just kind of come through and give it a, just a gentle open that'll release the carbon dioxide without allowing too much oxygen in. The thing with oxygen and fermentation is that oxygen breeds mold. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. If you see a little bit of mold on top of your ferment, just skim it off. 99.9% .9 of the time, it's gonna be absolutely fine. If you left it for months and went on some fabulous vacation um, and you come back and there's black mold all over it, you might wanna just take pause, start over, feed it to the compost or the chickens and hope for the best. I have a lot of different airlocks, but you can also just take any sort of like delivery food lid. I know that sounds crazy, but I'll take, okay, so we all have these in our house. For better or for worse, everyone's got them sitting around. I'll often cut out the inside. This one I did not. This one I just used them whole. Oh no, this one has one in there too. I'll cut out the middle like this. Cause it's like that, I reuse them, but then at some point, the bottom breaks, you know, use them as many times as possible. And then you can push it down. You want the brine to come up over the top. So this one has the brine coming up and over. And in order to pressurize it down so that it stays uh, submerged, I've just used a couple more of these, like one that had a crack or something else like that so that I get the most out of the plastics that I despise. Um, so that's one way we can work with the fermented vegetables. All right. I'm going to get our pan ready uh, for frying up a couple of these fritters. Pan frying, really. We're not doing a deep fry. We're going to do a shallow crisp on them. So I'm going to take just a little round ball of these. You can make them any size you want. Um, in the recipe, they call for them being, you know, fairly, not too big, a couple inches. I like to, and I didn't do it here, wet my hands a little bit before working with them. Hmm. The recipe says you get 24, but I got 14. So I don't know what that tells you, but. Depends on the size, you know, yeah. how flat you make them. So I'm just going to make little ones like that size. You can see, we'll sear hmm. a couple of these off. But I find that they stick to my hand a lot when um, they're not moist. You can put a little oil on them too. Yeah. So do you have a favorite thing that you make when it's really cold and blizzarding like it is here in Madison right now? 
uh, kimchi stew. Ooh. It's like nice. one of my, it's one of my all-time favorite foods. We're just like, uh, you know, super brothy, uh, dashi-based soup. But yeah, kimchi stew with a big pot of donabe rice is kind of my go-to. I have a bunch of bacon fat sitting around, so I'm just going to, you know, like I said, everything's a template. Like you do. Love it. We have a probably end up a little olive oil in there too, but uh, I never see, I never waste a single drop of bacon fat. Mm. So we're just going to get a little bit of oil in here. Like I was saying, about an eighth of an inch. You can go deeper if you if you like to deep fry. This is just a shallow fry. Lindsay's got a great tip. Lindsay, will you share your um, your popcorn tip? Yeah. I, I feel like everybody knows popcorn tip. Um, it's basically oh, when, <laughs> when, you're, when you're pan frying or deep frying or shallow frying, whatever, you put a piece of popcorn in there. And when the popcorn pops, it means the oil is ready to go. And then you can also eat the popcorn if you want. I always eat the popcorn. Um, but just one one kernel is enough to tell you when things are ready. I have like a candy thermometer and stuff like that, but it's it's really cheap and it doesn't stay up properly. So the popcorn is just a nice little cue of like, oh, yep, ready to get frying. I actually think in my nervousness to not use enough oil, I probably use too much. <laughs> so that's all right. Live and learn. Yeah. We were talking about this earlier. If you do have extra oil, you can always strain it as long as you haven't mm-hmm. taken it to the high noxious heat that you've oxidized it and it's not going to be good for your body anymore or it doesn't taste good. And you can strain it and just reuse it for something else. You know, in a similar fashion, you wouldn't necessarily want to saute vegetables in it, but you could sear, you know, something else in it. Say you could fry your eggs in it or something like that. My mother-in-law had a, had a fryer and she would do that with the fryer. She would just keep straining the oil and using it again and straining the oil and using it again. And after a little bit, you can tell. You can taste it. <laughs> yeah. I have a I have an odd palate for that if I ever eat fried foods out, which is not very frequently because I don't go out any these days anymore. Yeah. I get tasted that oil needed to get changed like two days prior. I think yep. it's the many, many years of uh, of working in restaurants. So <laughs> just so you guys can see, it's not doesn't always it doesn't look amazing, but you can see we've really softened everything down. So we've gone from like half a potato, whole onion here to just a wee bit of really concentrated flavor, and we'll get that um, buzzed up in just a second. So the, another way with the oil, I love the popcorn tip. I don't have any here right now, but I'll often just wait for it to look like it's shimmering. Mm-hmm. If we were to get gentle and um, on. This is too low on uh, water. It's one way that I will often gauge uh, my oil. We're going to give it another sec here. We are not quite that hot while we wait for that. So I'm going to take this. You can add the cheese right to this, you know, or in the um, blender itself. I'm just going to add it in because it's going to help me to get it into the blender and incorporate it. But it doesn't, you don't need to heat the cheese up you puree this at all so just gonna mix it if you have a hand blender i mean a high speed blender for this is probably the easiest but it doesn't have to be luscious smooth i mean the you know there's other options it can have a little chunk to it it can have a little texture to it i like it really really smooth so i'm going to use um my vitamix for it but you could definitely use whatever you have and if you have a hand blender something that doesn't have as much power you can also just let it cook a little bit longer so that the potatoes are super tender. They're all, you know, they're really buckling 
beneath, you know, your spoon when you test that. Almost done this oil. This will be loud for a second, but I will just buzz it up. Just a reminder, folks, if you have questions, you can put them in the chat uh, and I will get them to Courtney. Absolutely. I'm like watching you blend with a Vitamix that I have not yet pulled the trigger on. I have one of those blenders where it's like make a smoothie, chop ice. And I'm like, can't I just like choose a number of minutes or power or something else? No, it like wants me to choose what I'm making and I'm never making a milkshake. No. <laughs> so you can see the texture of the sauce. It's like really, it's thick, but it's smooth. So you mm-hmm. can plate it, you can dip in it. And I put a lot of black pepper in mine because I love black pepper. Maybe it'll be too much black pepper. We'll see. So this guy, so this is nice and warm. And I can hear it start to sizzle right away, which is great. And one thing with these is even though it makes 14 or 24, depending on how big you make them, you don't want to crowd your pan. So you really want them to have some space uh, to breathe in there. And that'll help them get crispy. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're warming the, uh, you're cooling the oil down so you won't get a nice crisp um, on your fritters. In the recipe, you say to turn the heat down right after the fritters go in? Yeah. I mean, I have mixed. It, the nice thing about that, like I don't always do it at home, but it helps people not burn them. Mm-hmm. So once it starts to sizzle, it'll start to cook that inside and warm it through. If it stays sure. on, you're not washing it really closely, the propensity for it to burn is a lot higher. And so it is a, it is a tip that I like to put in there so that it ensures people are going to have success more than anything. If you're, watching, if you're like diligently watching them really closely, you can kind of keep it at a little bit of a higher heat and then finish them in the oven if you want them to warm through fully in the middle. Got it. Is that a fish spatula? It is. <laughs> I use it for absolutely everything. I need one of those. Oh, they're the best. Cool. I don't know. Somehow, the, one of, at the, one of the restaurants that I consult with, someone switched me, my right one out by accident with a lefty, so it's super awkward, but it still works great. <laughs> we had friends over for Thanksgiving a few years ago, and my friend was trying to like fry off some onions for the top of a green bean casserole. Mm-hmm. And used one of our plastic spatulas to do what you're doing. And like the plastic bubbles. And I don't even know. Yeah. Do you have a favorite kitchen kitchen tool? I do actually. I'm like, do I have it here? I have a few of them. I never know where they end up because I move. I have like three different knife rolls. So it's a, um, it's a bench scraper, but a plastic one. This is not the one. It's, there's a Moff Terrebourgeot one, which is a hard plastic one, but this like, little bench scraper, which I haven't been using tonight because I couldn't find my favorite one, uh, to lift things up and put them into um, pots and pans and things like that. This is another type of it. So yeah, absolutely my favorite kitchen tool ever. I know it sounds so simple, but... No, I have I have four of them now. I'm And I've bought them for people because I'm low-key obsessed. Um we have a question about uh, after toasting the seeds, do you grind them, the caraway and the coriander? I don't know if there's cumin in this, but that'd be really good. In uh, Yes, you grind them, toasted and ground. 
Mm-hmm. The only ones of tonight that we're leaving whole are the ones in the kraut themselves. And again, if you didn't want to have them whole, but you wanted the aromatics in there, you could go ahead and grind those as well. And I like to buy my spices whole as much as possible because it really ensures freshness. But it's, you know, if all you have is pre-ground, um, just, you know, you can always give those a gentle toast as well. If you want to bring out some of the nuances, just be super careful with them in the oven. You really just only want to do it for a couple of seconds just to warm them through. Mm-hmm. I did the, I had ground, I think I had ground coriander and whole caraway and I ended up toasting the, I ended up toasting them both just a little bit, you know? Um, and then I use a spice grinder to grind them. And then I don't know where I heard this and it may be wrong, but I clean my spice grinder with rice huh? and just like pulse. I've had some brown rice. And so I just threw the rice in there and, and pulsed it and then like wiped it out. Cause the, the grinder itself that I have is, is a lot, it plugs into the wall and I don't want to put that too close to water. Yeah. You know? So yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. I usually just end up taking like a moist paper towel to it, but that's, yeah. that's a great. I heard that, but I'm going to give it a try. But the rice sort of absorbs some of the spice oil yep. or the, yeah. Then I usually have a lined, um, tray at my disposal when I'm doing this just to catch any little bit of excess oil as they come off. So these guys just toast up really nicely. And mm. then if I were to go ahead and plate this, I would just put a little sauce on the bottom or you can, if it was like a communal platter, you could have it for dipping, but you can, you know, season it as you want, um, garnish as you want. In the book, I have a bunch of different herbs on top of it. Again, I like more herbs, the better. Um, and then serve it kind of however you want. Like I was saying, you could do a fried egg on top. You could serve it with a bunch of roasted vegetables as a side dish with, you know, roasted meats. And then you, know, you can even have more kraut with it. I just want to show you how much liquid this is starting to weep off. Can you see? I mean, it's like about, it can drip out of there now. So it's starting to really coax out all of that liquid. Once I put this into a jar, I would leave it on the counter for about two to three weeks to naturally ferment, tasting it as you go and burping it as you go. And then once it's sour and that salinity level doesn't seem super high, you can um, refrigerate it and it'll just last for a really long time. Or if you have, you know, um, you have a cellar or a cold storage or anything like that. You ferment and pickle and preserve so many things. How do you keep track of all of it? And have you ever like lost track of something and had something really surprising happen? I've lost track of things like different like misos kind of long age ferments before where I've tasted it and been like, I really don't like that yet. And then I forget about it for a year and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And then I've forgotten about some things like a batch of green tomatoes um, that then really needed to go out into the back 40. Really that bad. <laughs> the and the still does not smell good. So oh. there's yeah. you know, success failures at every corner. <laughs> so do you do any the- rinsing? of salt off the cabbage? Not of this kind of ferment. If I were brining, let's say for a kimchi, which is a different style of ferment, I would rinse um, because you're doing it at a higher salinity level. You want to leave that one on there. What's happening with the salt is it's really, um, it's helping so that the texture does not degrade on your ferment, but it's also inhibiting bad microbes from coming in and letting the good ones take hold. Um, and then just adding layers of flavor in there as well. So there's some, you know, there's a lot of science as to why it's there. So in this one, you wouldn't want to. There are a lot of recipes out there for super low sodium ferments. So if that's something that is um, a necessity in anyone's life, you can definitely do some research on that. And they do prove successful as well. There's just a few more tips um, to, you know, how to get them to be super delicious. Yeah. 
Nice. The last, the most recent thing that I decided to preserve, I guess, uh, I did this recipe for dried fruit and brandy, mm. also citrus, and it was in the New York Times recently. And I've made cocktails with it, and I've been baking with these fruits, and it's sort of like fruit cake without the cake. <laughs> it's great. I recommend it. Very brandy. Lots of brandy. Very That's good. The best little fruit rum yeah. punch, you know, kind of take on that that you could hope for. So yeah. So those are our fritters and farmer's cheese sauce. Does anyone have any questions? Do you feel like you can go forth and cook with reckless abandon or ferment with reckless abandon? At least on this recipe, hopefully. I found this very approachable as we're sort of seeing if any questions roll in here. Um, I found Good. it very approachable and easy to do. You know, it was it was fun. It was fun to fry something on a Monday night. Absolutely. <laughs> Why not? Well, thank you for being here with us. Um, it's <laughs> one of our one of our attendees said that just, they just made spinach balls. What could go wrong? And I, you know what? I feel like 2020 right now, no rules. Like I finally learned to make sourdough. Like I'm just, I feel like I can try things now because I'm not going anywhere. I'll be here to catch it if it falls. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. So, but, take off entertained. So. Yeah. Um, I will, I'm going to drop the link for the Arcadia, um, 50% off again here in the chat. So you guys can all, I'm this beautiful book. It's such a gorgeous book. I love the photos in it. They're such a, they have such a specific kind of retro nostalgic look. They do. The photographer Hemi Lee is really, really talented. Yeah. I'm very lucky to get to work with her. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you guys for all you do to keep cap times going. It's a it's really amazing. It's lovely to be reconnected with Madison for a moment. Uh, has a very dear place in my heart. So, all right. Take care. Have a lovely evening. This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Lindsay Christians, Cap Times food editor. My co-host is Chris Lay, our editor is Natalie Yar, and Patrick Christians composed and performed our theme song. If you want to get a copy of Nourish Me Home by Courtney Burns, place an order at Arcadia Books, a wonderful little bookstore in Spring Green, and they will take 15% off when you enter CT15CB at checkout. That's CT15CB. One final plug for becoming a Cap Times member. You can go to captimes.com and find more information and get looped in on all our future member events. Help support local journalism. We truly could not do it without you. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a delicious home-cooked year, and I very much hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Cheers! This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.